Hello? Hello. Hey, Susan, it's Ralph. Hey, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Lovely, lovely. So that's Susan Cradle, Global Chief Creative Officer of FCB. We've shared the podium, the, the speaker's podium, a few times at London International's Liaisons Program. Well, to be honest, I just shut up and let her do the talking, which is what I've tried to do in today's episode, too. I had a great conversation with her, and I can't wait for you to hear what she has to say. She told me about the work that still haunts her today. Unfortunately, it was when the the second round of Silence of the Lambs came out where Ray Liotta's brains were getting eaten. We were not connected to that movie at all. Where she recruits her creative directors. Two of my creative directors coming up, one, one had been a cab driver and one had been a bartender. And her rise through the ranks. I mean, it was interesting. It was like I was at BBDO for 24 years. I mean, I was a secretary to some of the people that ended up working for me. This is Don't Judge Me. I'm Ralph Van Dyke, and this is Susan Cradle. Okay, so tell me, what does a typical day look like? There's no tip. There's no typical day. It's um, when you're when you work global. Like this morning, I was up talking to China. Other days, I end up starting at ten in the morning and going till ten at night. Uh, Half the time I'm on a plane. Sometimes I'm in meetings. It's it's. There's not one cons- one consistent day. Every morning I wake up and go, "What time am I supposed to start?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so right. Keeps it interesting. Sure does. So, what's the worst part of your job? Um, I would say the worst part of my job is simply because you're all over the place and working with so many people around the world. That every once in a while I miss that sort of partnership. You know, consistent partnership day day in and day out. Um, because when you're coming up through the creative, you know, ranks, you know, there's a lar- large part of your career which is really about um, being partnered with a group of people and being, you know, relentless on a, mi- a creative mission. And in this role, you really are jumping in and out of situations, and you know in and out of um, relationships with different people. Okay, so the consistency, or the inconsistency of it, unpredictability of it. Yeah, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be said for, you know, every day having something exciting to do or something that's happening somewhere in the world. But I would say the positive, there's also the repercussions of lack of, you know, having a couple of people that you wake up with and go to go to creative battle with every day yeah it's always someone different yeah what do you look for in an up-and-coming creative i think that it depends on the agency and the position and what's going on within the diversity of of the teams because it's really what i found that's been important over the years is that i think i used to look for a similar thing every time and really, what I've what I've learned over thirty years is that you're more like a conductor, um, putting an orchestra together. And if you just look for violins the whole time, you miss out on other people that will make what you make more interesting. So, I don't think you can. I think where we mess up as creative when we hire creatively is we don't look at what you need in the whole mm, as an ensemble. And. Yes, exactly. So to me, there's not one thing. And, you know, sometimes I look at portfolios and sometimes I actually look at the human being and what they're doing. And I think today, now that, you know, creativity is solved in all sorts of 
ways and it's not as traditional as it used to be, I think there's more room for people that haven't been traditionally or classically trained in advertising. So I look for poets, for curiosity, for people that are, you know, celebrating creativity outside of our industry. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's much more nuanced, I, I, w- I would say, over the years. I, I have to be honest, by the time someone gets to me, you know, um, in our company, I'm usually a closer. You know, I assume that they've been vetted for the right yeah. position and, you know, t- talent. So in this position, when I'm sent a human being who is going <laughs> to join our company. Send me another human. Yes, my job is to close it. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> Not to vet it. The sort of person you're looking for, is that also the sort of work you're looking to, to get from the next generation of creatives? You know, you want the poets and you want the... Um, you want to be surprised. One of the things that's interesting is when I got into the business, there were there weren't a lot of portfolio schools, especially for writers and conceptors. There there were a few schools for you know art directors because they required you know some lear- some some vocational learning, just some practical things you needed to know how to do. Um, and so you ended up getting a lot of interesting creatives coming in through comedy, through... I mean, two of my creative directors coming up, one one had been a cab driver and one had been a bartender. Wow. And, and a creative director met them and said, you know what, the way that you talk, the way you look at life, your humor, you know, your observations, I think you would really enjoy advertising. <laughs> and we just don't... We don't have... We haven't made room for those kind of hires in a long time. Yeah. It's almost like if you didn't know about advertising, it's really hard to fall into it today. That's true. And we're missing out on a lot of cool talent because of that. Yeah. I mean, it's and it's hard to recruit that way because we've been relying on the, uh, the normal paths that, that make it very easy for us to recruit from the schools and the colleges. And, right. Uh, we have to go out of our way. Yeah, I think they're important. I think the schools, and I don't want to dismiss the value because they, you really do come in with some excellent you know, pe- people that have really had a, a very specialized two years of, of, of thoroughbred training. But we have to make room for the, for the others. I would have never been in advertising if portfolio schools had been around when I was coming up. I just would, I wouldn't have done it. I didn't know enough about it. I wouldn't have invested the time or the money, I don't think. Um, but because it, because there weren't those kind of schools, the competition, getting into you know, a junior creative position wasn't quite as challenging. Even 10 years before I got into the business, there were, cop, you know, there were, there were creative training courses within agencies, and those don't exist at all today. So that's the, that's the hard part is when you hire someone who has not come up through a traditional training portfolio school, it can be very frustrating for that person to be thrown into the agency with if, if the agency's not there to basically train, educate, and support them as they, as they, as they learn the skill. And so if you're going to go, I, I think, you know, there's some agencies, I'm not going to mention them because they're not mine, but I love them. Um, but there are some agencies out there that I really admire because they do take untraditional people and, and support and surround them and allow them to, um, to flourish. And I've seen a, a few people that I've seen go into agencies and fail spectacularly and then go to these agencies that are already set up to make room for 
the originals and and do brilliantly. So it's not about the person, it's about the culture. Yeah, the structure. Okay, so th- looking back at the work that you've done um, over the years and, and the work that, I guess, was instrumental in, in getting you noticed and, and, and moving up in the industry, what would you say is the piece of work that you're most proud of? Uh, I, I think that's... I never like answering that question because it would be sad if you only had one piece of work you were most proud of <laughs> after 30 years. All right. <laughs> I'd be like, man, what a loser career I had. Well, um, it's, like, this is the Grand Prix. This is the Susan Grand Prix. So there's lots of golds, and you had to vote, yeah. you had to vote for one Grand Prix. So in, in fairness, I don't think award shows should define your career um, and I don't think um, oh no I didn't mean it literally of, I didn't mean it literally like right, there was but, but, but one hmm. of right 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 but, but there is an issue I have with our industry is that we tend to celebrate work one piece of creative at a time and I would say that the things that I'm most proud of are enduring ideas that have lasted over time okay cool uh, that, have, that have built something so the, the, the proudest moments for me have been you know I have to say M&M's was has been a huge part of my career yeah. only because you know we started the entertainment idea and defining the characters by the colors and creating a comedic ensemble yeah. in 1996 and it seems so simple now you know that it's everywhere but it was a moment in time where you kind of go how did we think that big about something <laughs> like why did why did we say you're not going to be in the chocolate business you're going to be in the entertainment business yeah. and you know why, and why didn't we negotiate the licensing so we owned it instead of the <laughs> client? <laughs> I've had three people try to eat me today. Three. Ooh, lucky penny. Anyway, sometimes I wish I were human. Whoa! Look at me. I'm human. Do you want to eat me? No. Do you want to eat me? No thanks. No. Would you like to eat me? <laughs> Nobody wants to eat me. I'm the luckiest. <laughs> You dropped your lucky penny. Man, I look good. You're still short and bald. Uh, (laughs) It's funny, I heard Jim Gaffigan was on CBS this morning, and he did a bit about how he hated the person who had invented the M&M store, and I felt personally attacked. (laughs) (laughs) He really really hurt my feelings. So my Grand Prix is an annoyance to Jim Gaffigan. (laughs) That's good. For it to have felt that personal, then you know that it's a that it means a lot to you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so, but I, you mm-hmm. know, uh, other things like you know, um, I was part of the team that started Singular Wireless when it didn't even have a name. Oh yeah. And we launched we launched that brand and turned it into an the brand when it was sold to AT and T was worth eight billion dollars. Wow. Just the brand, just the name. Um, so that was pr- uh, that was a pretty big moment to be a part of that nine-year journey. Yeah. And then when I went to Leah Burnett, the team that came up with Mayhem for Allstate, uh-huh. that was meant to be that was meant to be a summer campaign, and it's still going ten yeah, years later. And it's awesome. So, so those are the things that I value. Yeah, well, they're um, legacies. I mean, they, they, the fact that they're continuing today is just a testament to the strength of the idea. And well, no, I think that it's funny. I just. I just saw we 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 launched insurance. I don't know about six years ago when I was at Leo, and it was insurance for the modern world. And I just wrote the um, 
creative director because they they just launched a new piece of film with Dennis Quaid, which is quite it's quite fun. But they changed the tagline no. to I don't know some surprisingly simple or surprisingly easy. And I wrote him and I said I love the film, but you should have never changed the tagline. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, the logo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that. Just start over. Start over. Just throw that equity yeah, away. I know. Okay. Well, what about make, what about the pieces of work crazy. that haunts you to this day? What's your skeleton in the closet? Oh my lord! There's. I'm. The good news is I love Fernando Machado, who right now is the global um, CMO for Burger King. Mm-hmm. He said, Susan, the good thing about advertising is people forget. He said, you don't know how many bad things I do a year. I just don't talk about them. And I have to say, (laughs) I think, I mean, maybe that's why we survive is the bad ones. I just, I can't remember them, which is, thank goodness, that's usually what happens. No, I blocked them out. No, I think it's a a survival mechanism. Yeah, it's like, I don't, I know they're, I know they're there. I just don't know. We did do, we did do a commercial for M&M's one time that back when we started doing them, you had to do the animation like six months ahead of time. So it took quite a long time. And we we were doing one where one of the M&Ms was being held by a toddler, like a baby. And the toddler had eaten, was biting the M&M and was scooping the chocolate out of his head. <laughs> and... and um, you know, the two of the red and yellow were looking on like, oh my God, you know, don't go into the light. Don't go, don't look at the light, you know. And we were always trying to push the humor so it was not children's humor. It was more Saturday Night Live type humor. That'll do it. And yeah, so it was kind of gross, but it was cool. Unfortunately, it was when the the second round of Silence of the Lambs came out <laughs> where Ray Liotta's brains were yeah. getting eaten. Yeah, yeah, I was and way ahead of you. We had no, we were not connected to that movie at all. We were just trying to come up with fun stuff that said chocolate tastes good. Mm. But it, we got associated, and we got all this negative press about you know how could M and M's be associated with this piece of you know content and how disgusting to you know remind think people's brains are chocolate. And I'm like, uh, we didn't see it coming. No, <laughs> so that was right. weird. You know, as they go, that's not a bad, uh, that's not a bad skeleton. I think if that's the worst. Yeah, it was bad timing. Mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what could you do? If you could go back in time and, and give yourself a piece of advice when you were first starting out, what would it be? Um, try to write more of your your own story than trying to write what you think other people want you to. Hmm. Um, well, it's one of the things I've been watching with diversity being such an issue is when I came in, I was one of the few women, you know, at my company. And so I tried to write like how I thought the guys, what guy, what guys would like, mm. you know, I and you talking about and, this last year, actually. Yeah. yeah and what the creatives, you know, what I thought that my bosses would find funny. And I, I think I, one, I think I underestimated them. But I also underestimated the power, the interest of maybe the stories I would have told if I had just embraced more of how I looked at the world. And and, and it's funny because when I look back, the times that I did succeed the most is when I sort of told things I, I, I knew. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting because we were just um, at an IPG event yesterday about inclusion and diversity, and uh, the UN was there, and they were talking about their campaign called Unstereotyping, which is really, you know, being led by our industry to 
within the things that we make to not fall into stereotypes. And maybe this is another way is that I wish I had known that I was allowed to push up against stereotypes earlier mm. and had started breaking those stereotypes earlier. I wish I wish I had I wish I'd known I I had that power to not reflect society but progress society if that's a if you can say that <laughs> it's funny because one of the spot one of the first um, pieces of film I did for BBDO was a little NCAA film um, for Pizza Hut and it was just a and it it was a little boy playing an imaginary game of basketball in his head you know at an empty basketball court and I wrote it based on my brother and I used to always watch the UNC Tar Heels play and then at halftime we'd go out and play an imaginary game with each other. Yeah. And and so it was interesting because the guys were all like, how did you know how to write that spot? <laughs> but the funny thing is is it actually was it was exactly I wrote it because we we had played those games so many times and like it's even there's lines in there like, you know, you know, his big ugly brother Wesley gives him the old shake and bake, and mm-hmm. that's my brother. You yeah. know, and and what's weird is they all thought I was like a cool chick for being able to write a a, a guy basketball thing, but I actually was writing the thing I knew. Yeah. Um, so you know, it, that should have been a, a, a I should have I should have listened to that. <laughs> if you were starting out today, would you still want a job in advertising? I'm not sure. Mm. I'm not sure. I think this industry has turned on itself a little bit. Um, I I think that, you know, somebody said we're all trying to be the agency and do everything. You know, we can do it all. And I think in this fragmentation... I'm not sure. Like, I got into advertising because I really thought it was about storytelling. Just, you told stories through a brand. You know, it just kind of, you you had a subject matter given to you. You know, and sometimes I feel like I'm expected to be an engineer, you know, or product designer or coder. And, you know, a data and analytics person. And those are all great things, but if they don't serve story... I don't know. I don't know if this would be the business for me. Yeah, well, it's you know, just... If, it, it's a, if, it's all about, if it's all about targeting, you know, and manipulating and, you know, low-hanging fruit and that that's dangerous to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I... I don't, I don't know if I like where it's headed. If we get back to general, you know, mass marketing where people are invited into a story and they get to choose whether they're interested or not. Yeah. Um, I, I still like it, but if it becomes exclusive instead of inclusive, because I think targeting is exclusive. Like my, the kind of things that are given to me today, they're definitely targeted to a 50 year old, you know, woman, hmm. but they're, they're, they're closing my world down. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be targeted. I want I want to see a big, wonderful world and choose what things I want to be a part of. Why do you think winning a Leah is valuable and why should people enter? You know, it's interesting because my, my feeling about Leah has been more on the jury side. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think that there... 
It's a it's a group. Of, I'm always impressed with the juries that are put together, and I think that the awards that you win, they they have more value if you know the passion and the love that the jury has. And in some ways, I think that the times that I've served on juries at the LEA, I really think they've been. There's a very much of a people. The conversations I've had have not been full like you don't feel a nationalist you know xenophobe agency Mm. blocking sort of thing and and maybe it's because you know it's 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 and this is i don't know if this is politically correct to say but maybe because it's not it's not can where all Mm -hmm. of a sudden you know it's so 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 important so what i find is that the conversations actually are like the times that I've run juries there, they have been so honest, mm. you know, and people really, really thinking about the work and the power of the work and what the work did. Um, and I think that, you know, when you know that your work has been a part of meaningful conversations and this is what's been been lauded, you can feel really good about that. Mm. It's something about Vegas, this is bizarre contradiction that... You, uh, you arrive there and you immediately feel off duty, and I don't feel that it yeah. can. And, <laughs> exactly. And when you're off duty and you're in the room, you're you're speaking in you you, you are more honest because you're going well. Uh, you know, we're all together. We are now a, a, a jury that's been come to, that's come together, and we're judging this piece of work. But there's no other there's no other motivation, no ulterior motive. There's there's no vested interest. It's all this piece of yeah, work. Yeah, and I think and it's you just, know, it's something disarming about the place. There's something interesting too at Cannes because your work is, you know, as a jury, your work is going to be presented on stage. There's always this little thing of like, are we going to get in trouble? <laughs> you know, for me, like, is are we going to get booed? Are we going to get hissed mm-hmm. if we Whistled. put this piece up? Yeah, and and I was like, knowing that that's not going to happen not feeling that pressure, I think you can honestly say, I, I feel good about giving this the big award. Like, I think um, I did print a couple of years ago, and we awarded a few things. I think we, I think we gave Burger King um, the, the, big, the big prize because we said, here's a newspaper ad, you know, that was just an open letter to McDonald's. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, st- yeah that blew up a whole campaign. And, you know, there was talk in the jury room about, well, it's just a letter, open letter to McDonald's, you know, and it's not even, the art direction's not great, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, but as we discussed it, it was like, no, it, it proves that print is still a powerful creative medium and that they launched an entire brilliant campaign starting with an open letter to the CEO of McDonald's. Yeah. And I'm not sure if we would have been brave enough to have done that on a bigger, you know, in a different jury room. That came from New Zealand, right? Yeah, I think YNR New Zealand had that idea originally. Yeah, okay. And I'm not sure if they did all the pieces, because it was a big campaign, yeah. and I'm sure that they used many agencies to pull it off. And, you know, it's interesting because, I, I, again, talking about Fernando Machado, I love this story, which is that he, he's, the, the Y&R team had brought him that idea in August and they wanted to do it for Peace Day, which is the 21st of September. Mm. 
And he said, you know what, we're not going to do it this year because there's no way we can get everything perfect. And he said, but we're going to start working on it today for next year. And so they had to wait an entire year to launch the idea. And it just goes to show you, you know, people are like trying to come up with creative ideas in four weeks, Mm. you know, and knock it out in six weeks. And I think that big, brilliant work, you know, it takes time. When you're looking at uh, work, well, let's say you're jury president and you're talking to your, your, your jurors and you want to give them the criteria... Is there something that you use or an analogy or a, uh, a description for what defines gold to silver to Grand Prix? Well, it's funny. The way that I try to do it is that I say, let's, let's first look at the work and say, does it deserve a medal? And then I try to curate everything, like get the work that we believe deserves to be recognized with a medal. And then once you curate all of that, then I say, okay, of this work, which ones deserve to go to the next level? Yeah. And then you take those up to silver. And then you look at the silver that you've curated and say, okay, which ones stand out in this silver world and you think should be lifted up to a gold? Yeah. And then when we get to gold... You know, then you, you say, okay. And, and when you do it that way, first of all, I think it is much more that, I think it's much more respectful of the work, but it also becomes clearer versus I think if you're mm. voting medals on individual pieces of work, you can get so messed up. And it mm. also leaves, it leaves, it leaves big gaps for, for individuals to pull up average. You know, and shut down better. So I, I'm, mm. I'm pretty methodical about how I like to run the room. I mean, and it's funny, can they get a little irritated with me, but I'm like, this is the way I'm going to run it. And actually this year, somebody said, I think that we're going to start doing this for all the juries. Because one, it, it takes yeah. a little longer at first, but it's so much clearer. And, you know, as jurors are freaking out about how many golds do we have? Oh my gosh, we don't have enough golds anymore. We can't award anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens is you don't find yourself in that situation. And then when you have the bring back, it's also easy because you've already sort of set a standard yeah, across all right. the best work. Yeah. And, it, and it becomes pretty obvious versus if you're not, if you're, if you're questioning whether a silver is really a silver, that's a problem. Mm. You know, you should, and, and so I just, I, I think it's a really nice way to do it, and um, and again, one of the things that I've I've seen when people are trying to manipulate a jury room is they'll there'll be a bronze piece of work, and then they'll vote it gold, so it'll get a silver, you know, or yeah, there'll right. be work that shouldn't get a medal, yeah. and somebody will vote a gold, so it'll get a bronze, mm. and this the way that I do it, it for the most part, you can't do yeah. that. Yeah, no. What's the most memorable, stroke, bizarre judging experience you've had? Bizarre? Mm. Memorable or bizarre? Or bizarre. Within Leah or oh, just no, in, in the world? In, in the world of awards judging. It was the first time I was judging film at Cannes. And this guy, we went out for drinks, you know, as a group afterwards. And this guy said, hey, if you bring back this for me, I'll bring back something for you. And I was like, What? <laughs> And it wasn't even something I liked. And he goes, yeah, you, just, you bring back mine, I'll bring back yours. I'm like, I'm not bringing back that. I don't like it. <laughs> 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 
And I think he was so shocked that I wasn't. And I was like, really? And he was like, don't you know how to do this? And I'm like, no. And and I think also, you know, it was funny. I remember, um, you know, and, and it, it's really, you know, I feel sorry for the shows because it's something that it's hard to watch out for. It's, it's you know, and, and I think Can has done a good job of of trying to you know alleviate those kind of things but i think i think it's very hard mm. but i was just laughing because and, and maybe it's me but it's like if i'm gonna sell my ethics and my soul it's not gonna be for a piece of metal that <laughs> celebrates advertising i mean i just yeah. i you know I, i'm excited when we get awards and i love them and they attract talent and they make people feel good but seriously your ethics you're gonna put your morals and your ethics on the line for this this thing this these things yeah man yeah. those That's... guys but those people they, they just they, they tend to be weeded out over time I, well actually not over time they tend to be weeded out pretty quickly un, unless they are yeah. in such a high ranking position that they have to be invited to judge because you know just to balance out all the networks but in well, most cases but anytime i yeah but anytime i've ever gotten pressure to like hey you know this is the work from the network. Please be on the lookout for it. I'm like, I told I told some I told one of my bosses one time. I was like, it's best I don't know. I said because if I don't know what we're doing, I'll honestly with my heart yeah. speak about it if I love it. And I said, but if I know, I'm not going to talk about it because I'm going to feel weird. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. So don't tell me. I know, and I, I just can. <laughs> I, I just know that it would never ring true. I just know that I would just be so transparent, and <laughs> my heart wouldn't be in it. Uh, <laughs> What about this one? Uh. <laughs> no, and hand on heart, there have been some times where if I thought a piece of work was excellent and I was worried somebody was going to miss it, you know, I have said there's a piece of work that I really am proud of, you know, from our agency. Yeah. And, you know, I, I maybe that's a little political, but... It's, it is from the heart. I would never say it about something I didn't adore, mm. you know, didn't feel was important. But again, we all have to live with our, where we draw that line. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, you know, it, as long as it's pitched like that and said, look, uh, I'm bringing it up because I know it. It's, I don't know what things I've missed from other agencies, but uh, I'm familiar with this one. And right. I, and I rated it and exactly. I didn't write it. So, but I, I think that the, the, the creators who did do it, deserve to uh, have yeah. it evaluated. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, if you're running a jury, I think some people think that running a jury, that they're there to curate and, and put a show together that they believe in. Yeah. And I actually, I've, I try to sit back and listen to the room, and I feel like I'm much more of a an official, you know, like trying to make sure that one person doesn't dominate the room, mm. that, you know... That there's an equal discussion about work, you know, that if someone's saying positive, does anybody have anything, watch out. Yeah. So to sort of, to me, I'm, I, I feel like I'm much more offic- officiating yeah. um, the room versus curating and deciding the show I want. Yeah, no, that's a really important distinction, I think, for a jury president. Yeah. Okay, so we're now getting on to the, um, the quick fire round. This is um, <laughs> so uh, you know. Answer quickly. Okay. Here we go. We'll start start with the easy ones. Do you keep a portfolio, and if so, what's in it? No. <laughs> what would you say if one of your kids wanted to get into advertising? 
I'm sorry, if a kid wants to get into advertising? If one of your kids... Oh, I don't have children. What if one of your nieces or nephews? So my niece is an artist um, and a poet and a photographer. And I've absolutely told her that I think that this industry might be something she should look into. How many people have you fired? Zero to ten, ten to twenty, twenty plus. Probably zero to ten. Maybe, 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 maybe twenty. I'm sorry. <laughs> maybe ten to twenty. <laughs> there, there was a, there was a, a reorg when I joined Leo Burnett. Thirty days into my, oh, my job. Nice. And Welcome. <laughs> so, I kind of forgot about those. I'm like, ooh, that was a lot. <laughs> mm. It's always nice, isn't it? In the first month of your yeah. new gig. Oh, and well, by the, the way, did we mention that you've got to do this? Yeah, and the worst part is, is that, you know, the way it was received in public was, you know, Susan arrives in Chicago with a hatchet mm. and takes out, you know, X percent of the agency. And I'm like, um, <laughs> no, I'm just having the conversations. Yeah. I don't even know these people. Oh, yeah. So anyways, that was bad. Okay. Um, now, I probably know the answer to this, but I've got to ask it because it was one that was asked do or have you ever had to step on or over someone to get where you are today? Yes. Okay. No, it, I mean it was interesting. It was like I was at BBDO for twenty four years, and so people that were my—I mean, I was a secretary to some of the people that ended up working for me. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, but that's in twenty four years, you could just see you know the undulation of of what people wanted to do with their careers mm. and you know not everybody wanted to be in management or leading they just wanted to do the work yeah. which was which is great but it meant that you know suddenly some people that I had looked up to earlier in my career were now looking to me and it it was somewhat awkward but you know I my feeling is is that I respect talented people so much that um you know, hopefully there was grace with how we handled it. Yeah. I'm sure there would have been. How often do you concept and actually write ads these days? I probably do it every day, but I don't share much of it with anybody. (laughs) 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 I think I've always told creative directors or anybody that you should always be working on the assignments Mm. so that if if somebody needs, you know, some input or some stimulation... You've, you've given it some thought. You know, that's why I do it. And I think it's also a little bit like just keeping up your... Keeping your hand in. Ability, yeah, your ability to do it. Because it really... I think there is a little bit of natural training. Like, you know, just how you think creatively to solve problems. That's keeping those synapses jumping the right way. Mm. But the one thing that I still stay very much involved with is sort of sh- the strategic platform of big idea thinking um, because my feeling is is that if we get if we get the platform right if we get a really big beautiful place for a, a brand to live then you start swinging at that point of view over and over and something great's going to come mm. so I want to make sure we're swinging at the right thing yeah. um, so that's probably where I still am very much involved Okay, what's the most expensive thing you own other than your house? And what's it worth? Ooh. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> ooh. A sports car. Mm-hmm. A sports car that I bought 
when I turned 50 because I'd never bought like a ridiculous adult toy. And and I don't I don't love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Most expensive fine, thing you reluctantly own. Well, it's funny because I bought it because I wanted to know what it felt mm. like. And I was like, all right, well, I've done that. And that wasn't <laughs> terribly exciting. So I can, I know I don't need that in my life. So, yeah. And what is it? It's a Gran Turismo Maserati. Mm. Okay. Uh, right. Two more questions. And you've still got two passes in, in the bank. <laughs> and I feel you might want to use one. Okay. How much do you earn? I'll pass. Yeah. <laughs> Enough. Okay. How's that for an answer? That's good. Enough. That's good. When do you plan to retire and make room for one of the uh, the liaison delegates? Well, my husband, when I took the job at Leo Burnett, I was like, I said, when do I get to retire? And he said, well, I worked it out, and I think you can you can finish when you're 55. And I was like, that's so long from now. That's so, <laughs> so I'm going to have to work that many years, and now I'm 55. Yeah. And I'm like, and he's like, well, you can keep working if you'd like to. <laughs> so, Thanks, honey. And yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think when I feel like I am not adding value, you know, if, if, um, if, if I feel like I, I've, I've lost the plot, you know, or if the industry really has moved to a place that I don't quite understand, you know, I'll walk away. Mm. But I still, I still think that, you know, when I look at, you know, and it's funny, I was talking to my partner, Carter Murray, last night or yesterday afternoon, and I said, you know, I just, if I'm, if, if I'm making a difference at the company, I'll stay. But if I'm not, if people are saying, what is she doing? I don't know what her value is. Um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to hang around. Mm. And, I think there's lots of interesting things that I could do just based on 30 years of experience in this business that have to do with leadership and, you know, navigating your career, um, getting started, you know, so yeah. I'm, I'm not in any kind of, the nice thing is, is that I've, I've, my husband and I have always lived fairly conservatively, except for that <laughs> margarita, <laughs> picture of margaritas that ended up with a convertible. Yeah. Um, and we're not we're not really motivated by money, so yeah, I don't have a lifestyle that requires me to have to keep a job, which is quite freeing. Absolutely. Well, Susan, you are adding value, so I think you've got. Uh, they're going to have to wait a long time, and um, and you've been adding value in this last uh, half hour chat that we've had. So. Really appreciate it. It's been some fantastic advice, some insights, and uh, it's great getting to know you and, and judging you a little bit. Judge away. <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, get back to your sleeping children in Tokyo. <laughs> Thanks, Susan. Okay. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed a window into Susan Cradle's world. And if you did, please share it with other people who might be able to learn from her wise words. And if you've got 30 seconds, please write us a review. Next time on Don't Judge Me. Imagine every hour of every day, somewhere in the world, someone is trying to fire us. Rob Riley, the global creative chairman of McCann World Group and problem solver extraordinaire. Until then, I'd just like to thank the Eardrum team who have sold their souls to make beautiful audio. They are Jesse Williams, Kate Wiley, Tristan Viney, 
Paul Taylor and David McDonald. Don't Judge Me has been made possible thanks to Barb and her wonderful team at the London International Awards. I'm Ralph Van Dyke and I'll chat with you soon.